Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Tea and Old Books. This is day 7 of the lockdown in Spain and I must confess I'm feeling a little angsty now. Like I jogged around the flat a few times earlier in an effort to get some exercise. It's quite a small flat that I live in. It's got two bedrooms and one living space and one tiny balcony. But it's not too bad. So, we are reading on this podcast The Circular Staircase by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This is a book published in 1908 and it's a crime whodunit novel. It's very exciting so far. In this episode, we're going to read chapters 11 and 12. So, what happened last episode? So, in the last two chapters, we had Halsey came back. And he refused to say where he had been, but he says that he had a good reason for going and that when he can tell everyone, he'll tell everyone, which is not really doing much to reassure Rachel, the main character. Um, John Bailey, our good friend John Bailey, often also called Jack Bailey, confusingly enough, has been arrested for embezzlement. So he works in a bank and the bank is owned by the murdered man's father and John Bailey works there as a cashier and he's stolen some bonds and this debacle has caused the bank to crash because everyone quickly withdrew their money in panic. Um, So the bank is ruined and Gertrude and Halsey's money is in that bank so their money is gone. Like their millions are gone, they're going to have to be on like the paycheck of Aunt Rachel forever now until you know they marry or something. Um, Gertrude is engaged to be married to John Bailey, and she gets very emotional when her aunt basically says that she believes that John Bailey is guilty because of his you know the overwhelming evidence against him, say, and the fact that he's vanished. Still no sign of him. <clears throat> um, So yeah, I think that's pretty much where we're up to. So let's have some tea and then we'll start reading. So the tea I'm drinking today is a yogi tea and it's called Immune Support. Um, I I guess it's a good thing to drink during a pandemic. Hard to say. Um, I don't know what's in it because it doesn't say. Um, It's an Ayurvedic tea. So it's going to help me in some way. Um, It tastes a little bit like licorice or aniseed, though. Ooh, ah, that was really hot. Oh, my goodness. Um, What I quite like about these teas is on the tea bag as well, it has a little message. So let's see what the message says on this one. So this one says, mental happiness is total relaxation. Ah, it's nice, isn't it? That's good to know because at the moment I'm doing quite a lot of relaxing, not being able to leave the flat and go outside. So that's good. Mental happiness is on its way. I look forward to that. Okay, on with the book because one of my listeners has caught up and wants to know what's going to happen, as do I. So, chapter 11. It took me too long to say. I was pausing. I don't know why. Okay, sorry. Chapter 11. Halsey makes a capture. 
It was about half past eight when we left the dining room and still engrossed with one subject, the failure of the bank and its attendant evils, Halsey and I went out into the grounds for a stroll. Gertrude followed us shortly. The light was thickening to appropriate Shakespeare's... Oh, my Kindle just turned off. Okay, hang on, let me turn it back on. Sorry, that was not professional. Okay. The light was thickening to appropriate Shakespeare's description of twilight. And once again, the tree toads... Okay, just a pause here. What's a tree toad? Does anyone know what that is? Is that something in America? Anyway. The tree toads and the crickets were making night throb with their tiny life. It was almost oppressively lonely, in spite of its beauty, and I felt a sickening pang of homesickness for my city at night, for the clatter of horses' feet on cemented paving, for the lights, the voices, the sounds of children playing. The country after dark oppresses me. The stars, quite eclipsed in the city by the electric lights, here become insistent, assertive. Whether I want to or not, I find myself looking for the few I know by name and feeling ridiculously new and small by contrast. Always an unpleasant sensation. After Gertrude joined us, we avoided any further mention of the murder. To Halsey, as to me, there was ever present, I am sure, the thought of our conversation of the night before. As we strolled back and forth along the drive, Mr Jameson emerged from the shadow of the trees. Good evening, he said, managing to include Gertrude in his bow. Gertrude had never been or even ordinarily courteous to him, and she nodded coldly. Halsey, however, was more cordial, although we were all constrained enough. He and Gertrude went on together, leaving the detective to walk with me. As soon as they were out of earshot, he turned to me. <coughs> Sorry. Do you know, Miss Innes, he said, the deeper I go into this thing, the more strange it seems to me. I am very sorry for Miss Gertrude. It looks as if Bailey, whom she has tried so hard to save, is worse than a rascal, and after her plucky fight for him it seems hard. I looked through the dusk to where Gertrude's light dinner dress gleamed among the trees. She had made a plucky fight, poor child. Whatever she might have been driven to, I could never find nothing but a deep sympathy for her. If she had only come to me, then the whole truth then... Miss Innes, Mr Jameson was saying, in the past three days, have you seen uh, any suspicious figures around the grounds? Any women? No, I replied. I have a house full of maids that will bear watching one and all, but there has been no strange woman near the house, nor Lizzie would have seen her. You may be sure, she has a telescopic eye. Mr Jameson looked thoughtful. It may not amount to anything, he said slowly. It is difficult to get any perspective on things around here, because everyone down in the village is sure he saw the murderer either before or since the crime, and half of them will stretch a point or two as facts to be obliging. But the man who drives the hack down there tells a story that may possibly prove to be important. I have heard it, I think. Was it the one the parlourmaid brought up yesterday, about a ghost wringing its hands on the roof? Or perhaps it's the one the milk boy heard, a tramp washing a dirty sheet, presumably bloody, in the creek below the bridge? I could see the gleam of Mr Jameson's teeth as he smiled. Neither, he said. But Matthew Geist, which is our friend's name, claims that on Saturday night at 9.30, a veiled lady... I knew it would be a veiled lady, I broke in. A veiled lady, he persisted, who was apparently young and beautiful, engaged his hack and asked to be driven to Sunnyside. Near the gate, however, she made him stop, in spite of his remonstrances, saying she preferred to walk to the house. She paid him, and he left her there. Now, Miss Innes, you had no such visitor, I believe. None, I said decidedly. Geist thought it might be a maid, as you had got a supply that day, but he said her getting out near the gate puzzled him, 
And anyhow, we have now one veiled lady who, with a ghostly intruder of Friday night, makes two assets that I hardly know what to do with. It is mystifying, I admitted. Although I can think of one possible explanation. The path from Greenwood Club to the village enters the road near the lodge gate. A woman who wished to reach the country club, unperceived, might choose such a method. There are plenty of women there. I think this gave him something to ponder. For in a short time he said good night and left. But I myself was far from satisfied. I was determined, however, on one thing. If my suspicions, for I had suspicions, were true, I would make my own investigations, and Mr. Jameson should learn only what was good for him to know. We went back to the house, and Gertrude, who was more like herself since her talk with Halsey, sat down at the mahogany desk in the living room to write a letter. Halsey prowled up and down the entire east wing, now in the card room, now in the billiard room, and now and then blowing his clouds of tobacco smoke among the pink and gold hangings of the drawing room. After a little I joined him in the billiard room, and together we went over for the details of the discovery of the body. The card room was quite dark. Where we sat in the billiard room, only one of the side brackets was lighted, and we spoke in subdued tones as the hour and the subject seemed to demand. When I spoke of the figure Lydia and I had seen on the porch through the card room window Friday night, Housey sauntered into the darkened room, and together we stood there, much as Lydia and I had done that other night. The window was the same greyish rectangle in the blackness as before. A few feet away in the hall was the spot where the body of Arnold Armstrong had been found. I was a bit nervous, and I put my hand on Halsey's sleeve. Suddenly, from the top of the staircase above us, came the sound of cautious footstep. At first I was not sure, but Halsey's attitude told me he had heard and was listening. The step, slow, measured, infinitely cautious, was nearer now. Halsey tried to loosen my fingers, but I was in a paralysis of fright. The swish of a body against the curving rail, as if for guidance, was plain enough. And now, whoever it was who had reached the foot of the staircase and had caught a glimpse of our rigid silhouettes against the billiard room doorway, Halsey threw me off and strode forward. Who is it? he cried imperiously and took a half dozen rapid strides toward the, the foot of the staircase. Then I heard him mutter something. There was the crash of a falling body, the slam of the outer door, and for an instant, quiet. I screamed, I think. Then I remember turning on the lights and finding Halsey, white with fury, trying to untangle himself from something warm and fleecy. He had cut his forehead a little on the lowest of the steps, and he was rather a ghastly sight. He flung the white object at me, and jerking open the outer door, raced into the darkness. Gertrude had come on hearing the noise, and now we stood staring at each other over all, of, all things on earth, a white silken wool blanket, exquisitely fine. It was the most unghostly thing in the world, with its lavender border and its faint scent. Gertrude was the first to speak. Somebody had it? she asked. Yes. Halsey tried to stop whoever it was and fell. Gertrude, that blanket is not mine. I have never seen it before. She held it up and looked at it. Then she went to the door on the veranda and threw it open. Perhaps a hundred feet from the house were two figures that moved slowly towards us as we looked. When they came within range of the light, I recognised Halsey, and with him, Mrs. Watson, the housekeeper. Ooh, it's the end of chapter 11. Okay, so the housekeeper is lurking around now, throwing wool blankets at people willy-nilly. I mean, I, I don't even know what to do with that. I just can't even guess why. 
So let's carry on. Let's keep going um, and see, see what happens after I wet my throat with some tea. Okay, chapter 11. One mystery for another. The most commonplace incident takes place, takes on a new appearance if the attendant circumstances are unusual. There was no reason on earth why Mrs. Watson should not have carried a blanket down the east wing staircase if she so desired, but to take a blanket down eleven o'clock at night with every precaution as to noise, and when discovered, to fling it at Halsey and bolt, Halsey's word, and a good one, into the grounds, this made the incident more than significant. They moved slowly across the lawn and up the steps. Halsey was talking quietly, and Mrs. Watson was looking down and listening. She was a woman of a certain amount of dignity, most efficient, so far as I could see, although Liddy would have found fault if she dared. But just now, Mrs. Watson's face was an enigma. She was defiant, I think, under her mask of submission, and she still showed the effects of nervous shock. Mrs. Watson, I said severely, will you be so good as to explain this rather unusual occurrence? I don't think it's so unusual, Miss Innes. Her voice was deep and very clear. Just now, it was somewhat tremulous. I was taking a blanket down to Thomas, who is not well tonight, and I used the staircase as being nearer the path to the lodge when Mr Innes called and then rushed at me. I, I was alarmed and flung the blanket at him. Halsey was examining the cut on his forehead in a small mirror on the wall. It was not much of an injury, but it had bled freely, and his appearance was rather terrifying. Thomas ill, he said over his shoulder. Why, I thought I saw Thomas out there as you made that cyclonic break out of the door and over the porch. I could see that under pretense of examining his injury, he was watching her through the mirror. Is this one of the servants' blankets, Mrs. Watson, I asked, holding up its luxurious folds to the light. Everything else is locked away, she replied, which was true enough, no doubt. I had rented the room without, rented the house without bed furnishings. If Thomas is ill, Halsey said, some member of the family ought to go down and see him. You needn't bother Mrs. Watson, I will take the blanket. She drew herself up quickly, as if in protest, but she found nothing to say. She stood smoothing the folds of her dead black dress, her face as white as chalk above it. Then she seemed to make up her mind. Very well, Mr. Innes, she said. Perhaps you would better go. I have done all I could. And then she turned and went up the circular staircase, moving slowly and with a certain dignity. Below, the three of us stared at one another across the intervening white blanket. Upon my word, Halsey broke out, this place is a walking nightmare. I have the feeling that we three outsiders, who have paid our money for the privilege of staying in this spook factory, are living on the very top of things. We're on the lid, so to speak. Now and then we get a sight of the things inside, but we are not part of them. Do you suppose, Gertrude asked doubtfully, that she really meant the blanket for Thomas? Thomas was standing beside that magnolia tree, Halsey replied when I ran after Mrs. Watson. It's down to this, Aunt Ray. Rosie's basket and Mrs. Watson's blankets can only mean one thing. There is somebody hiding or being hidden in the lodge. It wouldn't surprise me if we hold the key to the whole situation now. Anyhow, I'm going to the lodge to investigate. Gertrude wanted to go too, but she looked so shaken that I insisted she should not. I sent for Liddy to help her to bed, and then Halsey and I started for the lodge. The grass was heavy with dew, and man-like, Halsey chose the shortest way across the lawn. Halfway, however, he stopped. We'd better go by the drive, he said. This isn't a lawn, it's a field. Where's the gardener these days? There isn't any, I said meekly. We have been thankful enough so far to have our meals prepared and served and the beds aired. 
The gardener who belongs here is working at the club. Remind me tomorrow to send out a man from town, he said. I know the very fellow. I record this scrap of conversation, just as I have tried to put down everything and anything that had a bearing on what followed, because the gardener house he sent the next day played an important part in the events of the next few weeks. Events that culminated, as you know, by stirring the country profoundly. At that time, however, I was busy trying to keep my skirts dry and paid little or no attention to what seemed then a most trivial remark. Along the drive, I showed Halsey where I had found Rosie's blanket basket with the bits of broken china piled inside. He was rather sceptical. Warner, probably, he said when I had finished. Began it as a joke on Rosie and ended up picking up the broken china out of the road, knowing it would play hob with the tyres of the car. Which shows how near one can come to the truth and yet miss it altogether. At the lodge, everything was quiet. There was a light in the sitting room downstairs and a faint gleam as if from a shaded lamp in one of the upper rooms. Halsey stopped and examined the lodge with calculating eyes. I don't know, Aunt Ray, he said dubiously. This is hardly a woman's affair. If there's a scrap of any kind, you hike for the timber, which was Halsey's solicitor's care for me put into vernacular. I shall stay right here, I said, and crossing the small veranda, now shaded and fragrant with honeysuckle, I hammered the knocker on the door. Thomas opened the door himself. Thomas, fully dressed and in his customary health, I had the blanket over my arm. I brought the blanket, Thomas, I said. I am sorry you are so ill. The old man stood staring at me and then at the blanket. His confusion, under other circumstances, would have been ludicrous. What? Not ill, Halsey said from the step. Thomas, I'm afraid you've been malingering. Thomas seemed to have been debating something with himself. Now he stopped on the porch and closed the door gently behind him. I reckon you'd better come in, Miss Innes, he said, speaking cautiously. It's got so I don't know what to do, and it's bound to come out sometime or other. He threw the door open then, and I stepped inside. Halsey close behind. In the sitting room, the old negro turned with quiet dignity to Halsey. You better sit down, sir, he said. It's a place for a woman, sir. Things were not turning out the way Halsey expected. He sat down on the centre table with his hands thrust in his pockets and watched me as I followed Thomas up the narrow stairs. At the top, a woman was standing, and a second glance showed me it was Rosie. She shrank back a little, but I said nothing, and then Thomas motioned to a partially open door, and I went in. The lodge boasted three bedrooms upstairs, all comfortably furnished. In this one, the largest and airiest, a night lamp was burning, and by its light I could make out a plain white metal bed. A girl was asleep there, or, in half stupor, for she muttered something now and then. Rosie had taken her courage in her hands and coming in had turned up the light. It was only then that I knew. Fever flushed, ill as she was, I recognised Louise Armstrong. I stood gazing down at her in a stupor of amazement. Louise here, hiding at the lodge, ill and alone? Rosie came up to the bed and smoothed the white counterpane. I am afraid she is worse tonight, she ventured at last. I put my hand on the sick girl's forehead. It was burning with fever, and I turned to where Thomas lingered in the hallway. Will you tell me what you mean, Thomas Johnson, by not telling me this before, I demanded, indignantly. Thomas quailed. Miss Louise wouldn't let me, he said earnestly. I wanted to. She ought to have a doctor that night she came, but she wouldn't hear to it. She, she, is she very bad, Miss Innes? Bad enough, I said coldly. Send Mr Innes up. Halsey came up the stairs slowly, 
looking rather interested and inclined to be amused. For a moment he could not see anything distinctly in the darkened room. He stopped, glanced at Rosie and at me, and then his eyes fell on the restless head on the pillow. I think he felt who it was before he really saw her. He crossed the room in a couple of strides and bent over the bed. Louise, he said softly, but she did not reply, and her eyes showed no recognition. Halsey was young, and illness was new to him. He straightened himself slowly, still watching her, and caught my arm. She's dying, Aunt Ray, he said huskily. Dying? Why, she doesn't know me. Fudge, I snapped, being apt to grow irritable when my sympathies are aroused. She's doing nothing of the sort, and don't pinch my arm. If you want something to do, go and choke Thomas. But at that moment, Louise roused from her stupor to cough, and at the end of the paroxysm, as Rosie laid her back, exhausted, she knew us. That was all Halsey wanted. To him, consciousness was a recovery. He dropped on his knees beside the bed and tried to tell her she was all right, and we would bring her around in a hurry, and how beautiful she looked, only to break down utterly and have to stop. And at that, I came to my senses and put him out. This instant, I ordered, as he hesitated, and send Rosie here. He did not go far. He sat on the top step of the stairs, only leaving to telephone for a doctor and getting in everybody's way in his eagerness to fetch and carry. I got him away finally by sending him to fix up the car as a sort of ambulance, in case the doctor would allow the sick girl to be moved. He sent Gertrude down to the lodge loaded with all manner of impossible things, including an armful of Turkish towels and a box of mustard plasters. And as the two girls had known each other somewhat before, Louise brightened perceptibly when she saw her. When the doctor from Englewood, the Casanova doctor, Dr Walker being away, had started for Sunnyside and I had got Thomas to stop trying to explain what he did not understand himself, I had a long talk with the old man, and this is what I learned. On Saturday evening before, about ten o'clock, he had been reading in the sitting room downstairs when someone rapped at the door. The old man was alone, Warner not having arrived, and at first he was uncertain about opening the door. He did so finally and was amazed at being confronted by Louise Armstrong. Thomas was an old family servant, having been with the present Mrs Armstrong since she was a child, and he was overwhelmed at seeing Louise. He saw that she was excited and tired, and he drew her into the sitting room and made her sit down. After a while, he went to the house and brought Mrs Watson, and they talked until late. The old man said Louise was in trouble and seemed frightened. Mrs Watson made some tea and took it to the lodge, but Louise made them both promise to keep her presence a secret. She had not known that Sunnyside was rented, and whatever her trouble was, this complicated things. She seemed puzzled. Her stepfather and her mother were still in California. That was all she would say about them. Why she had run away, no one could imagine. Mr Arnold Armstrong was at the Greenwood Club, and at last Thomas, not knowing what else to do, went over there along the path. It was almost midnight. Partway over, he met Armstrong himself and brought him to the lodge. Mrs Watson had gone to the house with some bed linen, it having been arranged under the circumstances. Louise would be better at the lodge until morning. Arnold Armstrong and Louise had a long conference, during which he was heard to storm and become very violent. When he left, it was after two. He had gone up to the house. Thomas did not know why. And at three o'clock, he was shot at the foot of the circular staircase. The following morning, Louise had been ill. She had asked for Arnold and was told he had left town. Thomas had not the moral courage to tell her of the crime. She refused a doctor and shrank morbidly from having her presence known. Mrs Watson and Thomas had had their hands full, and at last Rosie had been enlisted to help them. She carried necessary provisions, little enough to the lodge, and helped to keep up the secret. 
Thomas told me frankly that he had been anxious to keep Louise's presence hidden for this reason. They had all seen Arnold Armstrong that night, and he himself, for one, was known to have been no, had no very friendly feeling for the dead man. As to the reason for Louise's flight from California, or why she had not gone to the Fitzhughes, or some of her people in town, he had no more information than I had. With the death of her stepfather and the prospect of immediate return to the family things, had become more and more impossible. I gathered that Thomas was as, re as relieved as I at the turn of the events had taken. No, she did not know either of the deaths in the family. Taken all around, I had only substituted one mystery for another. If I knew now why Rosie had taken the basket of dishes, I did not know who had spoken to her and followed her along the drive. If I knew that Louise was in the lodge, I did not know why she was there. If I knew that Arnold Armstrong had spent some time in the lodge the night before he was murdered, I was no nearer the solution of the crime. Who was the midnight intruder who had so alarmed Lydia and myself? Who had fallen down the clothes chute? Was Gertrude's lover a villain or a victim? Time was to answer all these things. Ooh, and that's the end of chapter 11. Right, it's 11? Chapter 12. Chapter 12. That's the end of chapter 12. Wow, that was, that was an exciting chapter. Um, so we've got Louise Armstrong has made her way into the, into the story in person and has been hiding out in the lodge sick. Man, it really reminded me of like that Conan Doyle story when they find the sick child hidden in the lodge being you know, looked after by servants. Um, it's great. It's, it's a great troupe. We've got the love interest of Halsey, who's sick with fever, but she's just woken up enough just to, just to start recognising them. It's brilliant. So I'm going to stop reading because my throat is feeling scratchy um, and I'm having trouble continuing. But I will continue tomorrow with chapters 13 and 14. And chapter 13 is called Louise. So I guess we're going to learn why Louise has fled her family, why she's hiding at the lodge, why she didn't want anyone to know there, know she was there, and maybe why she, like, why she was arguing with her brother. What did they argue over? Um, so my predictions, I still think that Gertrude is the one who fell down the laundry sheet. Um, don't know why, but I think that was her. And the mysterious person that, at the gate, I mean at the window, maybe, maybe that was Louise. Maybe she snuck up there the day before. Hmm, we'll find out. So that's enough for today, and I will continue tomorrow.